Malevolent Maine is a horror podcast and may contain material not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. A woman who discovers her husband is a murderer while she's aboard their schooner. Residue from a mill that may have unexpected consequences. And a door knocker said to open up a portal to hell itself. Hello everyone, it's Lucas. Thank you so much for listening and joining us on this adventure. If you haven't already, follow us on all the major social media platforms. Join our Malevolent Mob at patreon.com slash malevolentmain for all kinds of extras. And keep sending us your own stories of the weird and unexplained. We love hearing from you. We're working on a special project with all of these user-submitted stories, so don't forget to send yours in. It could make the show. The lake's surface is flat and calm. The water is cold and dark. So dark, even the clouds in the sky don't reflect in its unmoving surface. As you peer down into the lake's black depths, searching for something below the surface, you feel the overwhelming urge to step into the lake. Something calls to you coaxing you to slip beneath the sable surface and see for yourself what lies at the bottom of the lake. Almost without thinking about it, you find yourself taking a step closer to the shore. That's singing you here? This is Malevolent Maine. Fear is a powerful tool. Guys, what was that? You can't be. No, seriously. What was that? You're recording. I can't explain it. But... What was it? <laughs> Life jackets on, MMers. Today, we're going up to the lakes region of northern Hancock County for a story that goes back hundreds of years. Hancock County located on the east coast of Maine, is known for many things. Scenic Bar Harbor, Acadia National Park, and Cadillac Mountain, the first place in the continental U.S. to see the sunrise, all call Hancock County home. But the farther inland you go, the population centers fall away, the roads become narrower, and the stories just a little darker. You won't find Blackwater Lake on any map, and for good reason. Blackwater Lake is said to be cursed by a mysterious entity that has been terrorizing the local population for centuries. Hidden deep in the dense woods of the Passamaquoddy Land Trust, just north of Nicotus Lake, the appropriately named Blackwater Lake is a dangerous spot that locals have kept away from going all the way back to the time before the first European settlers. According to legends, the spirit that haunts the lake will lure unsuspecting travelers to the water, where it will then drag them beneath the surface, never to be seen again. Originally, the land was occupied by the Passamaquoddy Native Americans. Their stories talk about an old magician whose name they erased from their histories. He lived on the outskirts of a village 
and was said to commune with Macumasuck, the malicious little folk that lived in the deep woods. This magician was old, well beyond the years of the oldest in the village, and was said to have a heart as black as darkest night. Whenever a young couple would marry, he would come to the village and take the young bride back to his home. He would keep her for a month before sending her back, but by then, whatever black magics he had worked on her had taken effect, and she would be a broken woman. There was nothing the people in the village could do because he was a powerful magic user and was protected by Kiwonik, the otter. One day, a young sorcerer or shaman came to the village, and he knew the secret of the old magician. He announced that he intended to marry and convinced a young woman in the village to go along with him. Before their wedding night, the young shaman went out into the wilderness and killed a white otter, a powerful brother to Kiwonik, who gave the evil sorcerer his power. The shaman had his bride-to-be cook the white otter in a stew, and when the old magician came for her, she offered him a taste. As soon as he tasted the stew, the old sorcerer grew sick, and a moment later he lay down, clutching his stomach, then died. But the shaman wasn't convinced the old magician wouldn't come back to life as a ghost witch, so he had the old man's body taken to the lowest point he could find. He piled heavy rocks on the sorcerer's body and staked down his arms and legs. Then he called to the waters. The rivers and streams bent to his command and soon flooded the lowlands where the evil sorcerer's body lay. The waters washed over the dead man, and because his heart was so black, its darkness seeped into the new lake, which gave it its name, Blackwater Lake. Content, the shaman and his new bride left the village behind and lived to a very old age. But the stories say the old magician at the bottom of the lake was not content to spend eternity beneath the water. So he began calling to the living creatures that came close to the lake shore, drawing them closer and closer until the waters washed over the unsuspecting creatures and dragged them below its dark surface. The Passamaquoddy stayed far away from Blackwater Lake and warned others to avoid its banks. In 1940, E. Silas Whitman, the famous artist and writer, collected stories from the Passamaquoddy people. The following was found from a manuscript written in Whitman's own hand, now in the possession of Armitage College. We asked Mark to read it. Uh, this is from a section titled The Blackwater and it's recorded from a man named Toma Parker, a member of the Passamaquoddy people. It reads, My great-grandfather told a story of the Blackwater, a lake somewhere nearby. He said, as a young man, the elders warned all the young men and women from going near it because the lake could reach out and snare a man. Still, my great-grandfather and his friend Thomas were not afraid. One day they went out to where they knew the Blackwater was. They ripped strips of cloth from their pants and stuffed them into their ears to block out the lake's call. 
As they approached its shore, they crouched in some bushes and waited. Soon a doe came out of the woods and walked to the water's edge. She bowed her head to take a drink, but then paused, frozen, as if hearing something. My great-grandfather and Thomas heard something, too. It was a strange sound, like nothing they had heard before. They said it was like a song, but there were no words, no voices. My great-grandfather started to stand up, but Thomas grabbed him and held him still. Suddenly, the Blackwater snaked out and grabbed the doe. She tried to fight to run away, but the Blackwater held her tight. My great-grandfather said he could still hear the doe's screams as it was dragged beneath the surface. To this day, he never went near the Blackwater again, and he told this story to his children and grandchildren, so they never would either. As the Passamaquoddy were pushed back, and more and more European settlers colonized the area, the stories of Blackwater Lake continued. Some say it was Enoch Lincoln, Maine's sixth governor, who owned land in the surrounding area, that quietly forbade Blackwater Lake from ever appearing on a Maine map. Either way, Blackwater Lake is something most locals don't like to speak about. It's a dark secret, a skeleton in the closet that's best forgotten. Bernard Pollock, the legendary Maine explorer, claimed that he too had once encountered Blackwater Lake. According to his diary, he came across the cursed water in 1782 while exploring the region. Pollock claimed that as he crested a high cliff, he looked down and saw a lake of the blackest water, shaped curiously like a skull. From his vantage point, he could see all of the small lake, and that it looked like the night sky was reflected back up at him. Then the sun went behind a cloud, and for a moment, Pollock claimed he could see all the way to the bottom of the lake. What he saw were bones, thousands of bones, of all shapes and sizes, both animal and human. He notes that he heard a high singing, but it sounded like, and I quote, an infernal choir was raising its voice on high. He writes that he had a vague desire to dive off the cliff, and into the water. But then the sun came back out, the singing stopped, and the water was dark and opaque once more. We've talked about Bernard Pollock before, and while his notes on Maine Exploration, published as a book titled A History of Maine Exploration, is a seminal text in early Maine history, Pollock was known as an exaggerator and storyteller first, explorer and accurate detailer second. In no other resource could we find any reference to Blackwater Lake being shaped like a skull, and the veracity of his view of the lake's bottom seemingly defies science. That's not to say Pollock didn't encounter Blackwater Lake, or hear its cursed siren song. Perhaps he was distracted and embellished the description. Perhaps he thought history needed more sinister details to sell copies. Or... Perhaps Bernard Pollock saw exactly what he wrote about, and this was one of the few times he told the absolute stark truth. Regardless, over the years there have been countless stories of people who have disappeared near Blackwater Lake, never to be heard from again. Like all local legends, some of these need to be taken with a grain of salt. The missing Boy Scout troop from 1988, for example. The story goes that while taking the boys out on a hike, 
the scoutmaster got turned around. It was a hot day, the hottest of the summer, so when they stumbled upon a lake the scoutmaster couldn't find on his map, the boys were overjoyed with a chance to cool down. That is, until the lake began devouring them, one by one, until no one was left. This is almost certainly a fabricated work of fiction, created by some inventive mind, most likely around a late-night campfire. There are no records of an entire Boy Scout troop disappearing. That's the kind of thing that's good for scaring your friends on a camping trip, but in real life would be a national news story. No, it's the smaller stories you have to pay attention to. The ones about lonely men who go off into the woods never to return, or the woman who went on a backpacking trip after her parents' untimely death, only she never came back out of the woods. Individuals, ones who will remain in the headlines for a few days, but are quickly replaced by new tragedies. These are the ones that are the most believable. And the locals can tell you which ones they are. The writer who rented a camp not far from Blackwater Lake in an attempt to finish his book. The teenager who broke off from the group, claiming to know their way around the woods. It's usually the ignorant, or the arrogant, who find their way to the shores of Blackwater Lake. At least, that's what the old-timers who drink coffee at the Burlington General Store will tell you. Then, there's the case of the morals. Here's Mark to explain. Seth and Brianna Morrill had been married for a little over a year when they went camping along the shores of Lower Pista Lake in 2018. They were in their late 20s, Seth worked in IT, and Brianna was a dental hygienist. They were experienced campers, and they thought the area just north of Route 9 in Hancock County would be a great place to spend a week. They planned to hike, kayak, and camp their way across the area. On the morning of June 14th, the Morals drove into the town of Lincoln to restock on groceries and supplies. There, Brianna called her sister to tell her they had heard stories of this unmapped lake in their area. She and Seth were planning on hiking out to it the next day. The Morals were never heard from again. Their car and all of their belongings were found parked on the side of the road near Side Pistol Lake. Their IDs, money, and other personal belongings were left in the locked car. The keys and the couple's two-day packs were the only things missing. A hunter who had volunteered to help look for the missing couple discovered a hiking boot that belonged to Brianna Morrill several miles from the parked car. That was the only trace of the Morrills that was ever recovered. In the five years since their disappearance, no new sightings of the couple have occurred and no remains have ever been discovered. It's as if they simply walked off into the woods one morning and completely disappeared. Had events like these happened in any other part of the country, or even the state, there would have been talks about serial killers, murder-suicides, even alien abductions. But in this particular area, the land now designated as the Passamaquoddy Land Trust, People know what really happened. They'll talk about it in hushed voices in garages or backyards after they've had a few drinks. The people in this area don't like to talk about it, but they know it's out there. It's dark, reflective surface calling to the unsuspecting, singing its strange song to entice those within ear range 
to take just one step, one tiny step, into its cool depths. Blackwater Lake. A few weeks ago, we received a call from Paige Collins. She told us her wife, Emery, had gone missing in the area near Blackwater Lake. We told her that she needed to call the police if her wife was missing, but she said she called us because she knew all about the legends of Blackwater Lake. And that Emery did too. She said Emery had gone to Blackwater Lake on purpose, because of all the legends. She said she had gone to find her sister, Brianna Morrill. We spoke with Ms. Collins for a little longer, then arranged for a meeting at her home. Paige told us that her wife, Emery, had become obsessed with the legends of Blackwater Lake after her sister had gone missing in the region. She showed us Emery's home office. There were dozens of files on her computer and bookmarked websites relating to Blackwater Lake. She showed us photocopies of newspaper stories and accounts from old books Emery had pinned to the walls. She never really recovered from her sister's disappearance, Paige Collins told us. Emery was the last person to speak with Bree. She had told her they were going to explore Blackwater Lake. She was angry because she felt the officials were lying or were covering up the truth about what happened to Seth and Bree. Emery said they wouldn't even show her where the guy found Bree's boot because it was part of the secret to keep everyone away from Blackwater. If this is true, if police officials have purposefully withheld information, this would speak to a larger conspiracy, a collective agreement to sweep anything Blackwater Lake related under the rug. When we reached out to the main police, we were told they had no comment on the moral disappearances and could not speak because it was still an active case. Paige told us Emery grew obsessed with Blackwater Lake. She made preparations to go to the area and find the lake, hoping she could find some evidence of her sister. Paige begged her not to go, but Emery insisted. Paige said she would go with her, but Emery told her she needed to stay behind in case anything happened to her. It was Emery, a devoted listener to our show, that told Paige she should call us before she called the police, that we would be better equipped to handle whatever was up there. And she left copies of her maps with her notes on where she believed Blackwater Lake could be found. She told Paige that she would record everything she could on her phone and send it to Paige when she could, but if she couldn't, she would leave behind notes attached to trees and Ziploc bags, and she'd mark each tree with a crude turtle carving she'd been practicing. Paige showed us several pieces of wood with a turtle image carved into it. She begged us to find her wife, and in the end, we agreed on one condition. We would spend 24 hours in the area looking for the now missing Emery Collins, but after that, we were going to call the police. Tom and Lucas were out of town on another investigation, so Mark and I packed the car with camping gear and headed north to the point Emery had marked on her map. Okay, so we made the drive up to Lowell, then we took Route 180 East. Uh, we parked on the side of this dirt road by Side Pistol Pond. Do you think this is where the Morals parked? Yeah, near enough. 
Okay, so like we're following the map that Emery Collins drew and our plans to get as near to the lake as we can before nightfall. We think it's best um, if we don't get near the lake until morning. We've got a tent and camping gear, but uh, we also have our investigation equipment, earplugs, noise-canceling headphones. Um, if Blackwater Lake calls out to its victims, we're hoping to be able to you know, block it out. Now, we're out of cell phone range up here, but we're going to keep recording. As near as we could tell, the place Emery Collins indicated as the location of Blackwater Lake was about three and a half miles from where we parked. On a good hike, with a well-marked trail, this should take about two hours to do. For us, there was no trail. We were literally hiking through the woods, using nothing more than some photocopied maps to guide us. We stopped often to try and reorient ourselves, using what limited Cub Scout hiking and orienteering knowledge we had. Once we got turned around, and went nearly half a mile out of our way before we realized it and turned back. We did our best to mark our path with orange trail ribbon, which Mark had the good idea to attach our malevolent main stickers to, just in case we got turned around again or needed to bring someone back here. It wasn't long before we found the first turtle marking carved into the tree. Okay, so we found our first turtle. We almost walked by it, but Chris spotted it. Uh, there was a Ziploc bag attached to the tree. We th think she's using a staple gun. We didn't open the bag, but there's a sheet of notebook paper. It's clearly visible through it. I'm going to read it now. June 14th, entry one. Paid a local for our ride out to Side Pistol Pond. He asked why I wanted to go out there, and I told him camping. Pretty sure he gave me a strange look, but he didn't say anything and took my $50. Walked around the side of the small parking area a little bit, kept thinking of Bree. She stood right here. She thought she was on an adventure, not me. I know this is a horror story. Made it half a mile into the woods before I took my first break. Past a big oak that sort of looked like a giant man bending over. Have to remember that for the way back. The woods are quiet, but not alarmingly so. I'm the only person around for miles. Just me, and the birds, and the chipmunks. At the bottom of the page, Emery signed dated, and timestamped the note, as well as indicated the bearing she was following next. We were nine days behind Emery, but we felt closer to her somehow. It felt like if we just kept going, we would come up around a rock or a big tree, and she would be there, waiting for us. So we pressed on, determined to find out what had happened to her, and maybe her sister and brother-in-law as well. It didn't take us long before we found a second note, once again stapled to a tree and marked with a turtle. Entry 2. They say Blackwater Lake entices people into it. Once in the water, it grabs them, pulls them under, feeds on them. We tend to think of nature as passive. Forests and rivers just exist. Yes, hurricanes and earthquakes happen, but those are the effects of natural, scientifically explained causes. Is it possible Blackwater has evolved? Has it gone from being passive to becoming a predator somehow? How would that even work? Still feeling good. Woods are all around me, but I'm not afraid. Feels almost good. I can see why Bree liked it out in the sticks so much. 
As we hiked, Mark and I kept looking for any signs of Emery. It's entirely possible she fell and broke her ankle or wandered off somewhere or got attacked by a wild animal. Out here, there would be no way of calling for help, and no one to really hear if you did. For all we knew, we might stumble upon her, hopefully still alive, in a makeshift wooden splint, praying for a rescue. We both agreed that didn't feel likely. Still, she was right. The woods didn't feel frightening. There wasn't any trace of a sinister energy in the air, and for a little bit, Mark and I could convince ourselves we were out on an ordinary nature walk. Then we found the third note. Note three. The woods are listening to me. Maybe that's not right. Not the trees, not the birds, something else. I can feel it. Like when you can sense a person is in the room with you, even if you haven't seen them yet. Did I make a mistake coming here, Paige? What did I think I was going to find? Surely not their bodies. They would be long gone by then. Then what? Their stuff? The tent? Sleeping bags? Breeze bag? Did she carry that picture of Dad with her? The one we always used to laugh about but secretly loved? No. What's listening to me knows I'm coming closer. It's getting ready. I need to be on guard. At this point, we kept our recorders on the entire time. We guessed we were halfway to the place Emery had indicated on the map, but we weren't sure. We had tried keeping a distance counter going on one of the running apps on our phone, but the number of times we got turned around or veered off course gave us only a vague distance of how far we'd come. We found three more notes, all stapled to the trees, all marked with the turtle. They were from Emery, but each successive one seemed more and more erratic. Her handwriting got worse, as did her sentence structure. By the end, it seemed little more than rambling. Entry six. Doubled back once I saw them. 300 yards? Good enough, I hope. Colder now. No birds, no beasts. Just me. And it. Carving in the trees. Faces. People. Magic. No trespassing. Go to jail. Do not collect 200. It's there. I saw it. Just a glimpse of its cold black water. Turned and ran. Wrote this note. I'm here, Bree. I'll find you. Sorry, Paige. I never should have come. After we read her last note, Mark and I put on our noise-canceling headphones, each one of us playing music we had downloaded to our phones. These were over-the-ear kind, not earbuds and had been fairly expensive. We also put in the earplugs we had brought. It was strange walking through the woods, listening to the muffled music coming through the headphones. We couldn't even hear our own footfalls, but we knew we were getting closer. It was only a few steps later, maybe a hundred yards, definitely not the 300 Emery thought that we came upon the faces in the trees she had written about. Unlike Emery's turtle carvings, these were far, far older. They had been done with care, and while some were faces, most of them were symbols. They were Passamaquoddy wards and sigils, meant to ward off evil spirits or offer protection from them. They had been carved into a ring of trees going off in either direction. 
it was impossible to tell if the birds and squirrels had stopped their scamperings, if even they kept their distance from the barrier we were about to cross. Look, look, right there, right there, what's that? What that was, was a dark blue Coleman Sundome two-person tent. The exact kind Emery Collins had brought with her. Despite our desire to rush to the camp, we both took precautions. If we had forgotten the dangers of this place, Emery's last note had certainly reminded us. Before our trip, we had purchased five coils of 100 feet diamond-braided polypropylene rope, all in different colors. We had marked off every foot on all five coils. Before we ventured past the carved trees, we tied one end of rope around a thick pine tree. Mark tied the other around my waist. We made sure the knot was tight and that I couldn't slip out of it. Then, as I started walking towards the tent, Mark slowly unspooled the rope, giving me just enough leeway to take a step forward, but fully prepared to pull me back. The whole time my recorder was going, picking up every sound of the forest around us, even if I couldn't hear it. I'm approaching the tent now. It's, it's, she camped here. Someone camped here. I see the tent. There's a campfire ring. The tent's open. I'm... Uh, Are you okay? What is it? Going to go inside. Okay. Okay, there's a sleeping bag, a backpack. There's a notebook on the sleeping bag. It's... It's... Oh, oh shit. Oh, shit. I'd gone 50 feet from Mark before I entered the tent. When he couldn't see me, Mark started tugging on the rope. At first, just to get my attention, but then harder and harder. I managed to grab the backpack and the notebook before heading back to meet him. I showed him what I had found, and, using gestures and then eventually a note written on my phone, we agreed to head back the direction we had come before investigating further. We proceeded back to the spot where we had found Emery's sixth note, then tied the rope around that tree. We walked back until the rope ran out of length, then tied one of the others to it. We repeated this until we had tied all five coils together, 500 feet back from Emery's last note. Only then did we take off our noise-canceling gear. As many of you know, June was a particularly wet month for Maine. We got about six inches of rain, almost double our monthly average. June 17th, four days before we got to the area around Blackwater Lake, and three days after Emery had left her notes, had been a day of some of the heaviest rain, almost two inches. The tent had been open for who knows how long, and some of the rain had gotten in. The bag and the notebook were soggy, heavy with the water that just wouldn't dry up. Wearing latex gloves we had brought with us, Mark and I inspected the bag. All right, there's uh, women's clothes in here, like shirts and shorts, socks. Uh, let's see, there's a sweatshirt from the University of Maine at Farmington, which is pretty worn. Uh, there's some snacks, like granola bars and ramen noodles. Wait, wait, I've got a wallet. What is it? What does it say? At this point, Mark held the wallet up to me, open so I could see the driver's license. Emery Collins. The notebook was in pretty rough shape, 
the pages had soaked up the moisture from the recent rain. It had swollen to twice its size, and the blue lines, along with whatever had been written in black ink, had smudged and ran off the page in places. All told, six pages had been filled with writing at one point. We did our best to preserve the pages, but they were almost completely ruined. We did make out the line, feeling better, at one point. And then farther in, cliff overlooking lake. The last page was mostly preserved. At the top of it, written in big, jagged letters, were the words, I can hear it singing. Below that, written in ever-worsening handwriting, were the lines, I'm sorry. I love you, Bree. I love you, Paige. I'm sorry. Over and over again. It ends with even more jagged letters that spell out her final message. Going to the cliff. We had found Emery Collins' camp, but no sign of her. It was clear her camp had been abandoned for several days, but it was curious that nothing had disturbed the site. Everyone in Maine knows that if you leave food out overnight, something is going to come for it. Hopefully just a skunk or a raccoon, but maybe a bear. Or something worse. But nothing had touched the contents of Emery's tent until I went inside. Mark and I made the foolish decision then to spend the night in the woods near Blackwater Lake. We set up our tent about 30 feet back from Emery's, close enough to the warded trees that we tied part of the tent's fly to one of them. Our rationale was that if she had gotten stuck out here and was gone for the day, then if she came back and saw our tent, we might be able to help bring her back. With our camp set up, we decided to see if we could approach the shore of Blackwater, just beyond where Emery's tent lay. We had agreed not to do so until morning, but there were still several hours of daylight left, and we were anxious that maybe we could still help Emery. This time, I stayed behind and tethered Mark to a tree not far from our tent. I spooled out the rope as he walked down past the abandoned tent. Here's Mark describing what he was seeing in real time. Okay, there's Emery's tent. There are some trees beyond that, but I can't... Oh my god. Oh, I can see it. It looks so black. Like... like hot top. Like... like black paint. Alright, I'm past the trees now. You still got me? Okay. Yeah, so... so it opens to a rocky beach area. It's uh, flat for, I don't know, 20 feet? Before the... yeah, I'm okay. It's flat for about 20 feet uh, before the water. Uh, it's not moving. There's a breeze, but I, I don't see a ripple on the water. There's no sign of movement. It's like a big sheet of black glass. Mark stopped just before he could reach the shore. That had been our agreement. And when he turned back to give me a thumbs up, he had gone 95 feet from the tree. I quickly tied off another rope at exactly 95 feet, looped it around my waist, and followed him to the shore of the cursed lake. Oh my god. Look, there's the cliff. This, this is terrible. Do you think she's up there? What? What? I can't see down into it. Not even at the edge. 
It's not even moving. We went back to our tent and prepared for the night. We kept our earplugs in and our headphones on all night. We also took the precaution of tying ourselves together with 30 feet of rope. If something happened and one of us either got up and got lost or or a more sinister alternative, the other should be able to pull him back. We also set our recorders to turn on if there were any noises. It's an automatic function people use to monitor sleeping, or, in our cases, listening for spirits or other creatures usually unseen to the human eye. We have to warn you, what happened next was terrifying and could have ended very, very badly. In hindsight, we should have tied ourselves to trees. But even then, I'm not sure we would have avoided what came next. At some point in the middle of the night, I awoke to the feel of the rope tied around my arm, being yanked. Mark had gotten up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom. I'll let him explain, in his own words. I know, what do you want? I had to go to the bathroom. So I went out of the tent and I walked a few feet away. It was dark, but I was pretty sure I moved away from the lake, not towards it. Anyways, I had my music going, but it felt like everything was so quiet. I I thought for a moment, I'd just pull out one of the headphones just to see if I could hear anything. My thought was that even if the lake was calling to us, when I let go, the headphones would, you know, snap back down over my ear and it cut off its sound. I don't know what happened, but I I think I tripped over a root or something, and then I fell and I yanked the headphones right off my head. What happened next was picked up when my personal recorder turned on. We want you to know that we made sure this audio was safe before we played it for you. Mark! Mark, what the the f***? Hey! Hey, Mark, what are you doing? Mark, don't! Don't, don't, Mark! Don't listen to it! Come on! Fight it! Come back! Mark! Mark! Mark had reached the edge of the 30 feet that tied us together. And while I attempted to pull him back, I was off balance and off guard. He dragged me for another 30 or so feet before I was able to put up some resistance. I fought, but he was like a man possessed. He kept walking, pulling relentlessly towards the lake. Finally, on one of the last trees, I managed to get myself wrapped around it, creating a tether and a pulley of sorts. Slowly, I started pulling him back, going around and around the tree to reduce the length of the rope. Come on. Come on, Mark. Get over here. Come on. Son of a... Come on. Get over here. Eventually, I got Mark back to me. By some miracle, his headphones had not come dislodged from his phone and still hung on his neck. With one hand, I managed to pull them back up over his ears. He sort of collapsed then, leaning up against the tree he was now securely tied to. I slid down next to him, exhausted. We stayed there maybe 30 or 40 feet from the shore of Blackwater Lake as it sang its deadly song. In the morning, 
Mark seemed himself, and we made our way back to our camp. We quickly packed up and began following our trail back out of the woods far away from Blackwater Lake. We placed Emery's backpack and her notebook in a trash bag and carried it back with us. When we got back to where Emery had left her second note, we tentatively removed our headphones, the two of us still tied together. The woods were alive with the sound of birds, bugs, and small animals moving about. Whatever siren song the lake had called to us was long gone. We hurried back to our car, back to civilization, and quickly called the police. It wasn't until later, safely back at the office, locked in the studio, and with the others around just in case, that we listened to the audio we recorded that night. Maybe it was the distance, either geographically or in time, or maybe the fact that it was a recording, but either way, the sound, the song, appeared to be safe to hear. If you listen carefully, you can hear it. That wild, inhuman singing that serves as a background for the entire traumatic event. We don't know what it is exactly, or what was causing it, aside from the obvious answer of the lake itself. We had set our recorders to turn on when there was sound, and we were shocked to discover over four hours of the so-called singing before Mark woke up, and another almost five hours after we collapsed against the tree. We still don't know what happened to Emery Collins. Mark believes she climbed that cliff we saw, most likely under the influence of Blackwater Lake. It is probably the same cliff that Bernard Pollock discovered in 1782. Mark's theory is that unlike Pollock, Emery wasn't so lucky, and probably leapt to her depth in the cold black waters below. As of now, it is an active police investigation. We've turned over everything we found, plus the maps and copies of our notes and recordings over to the authorities. They have promised both us and Paige Collins a full and detailed investigation using every available resource. We're not sure we believe them. We still don't know what exactly Blackwater Lake is. Is it the cursed spirit of an evil Native American magician that haunts the place? Or is it as Emery theorized, and the lake itself has evolved to become predatory? Then again, perhaps it's something else entirely. What we do know is that it is dangerous. Mark nearly died that night on its shore, and countless others have as well. Seth and Brianna Morrill, and Emery Collins, to name a few. If you are in the area, we suggest you steer clear of the woods northeast of Side Pistol Lake. Something dangerous there sings a lethal song. 
Stay safe out there, Maine. Malevolent Maine is Lucas Knight, Tom Wilson, and myself, Chris Estes. Don't forget to follow us on social media and rate and review this podcast. If you'd like to support future investigations, join our malevolent mob at patreon.com slash malevolentmaine. We believe you.